0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, I want to take you back thousands of years to a land called Egypt. There was a man who was the pharaoh, the king of this land, and this man was busy building an empire. And he was building the empire, not on taxes. He was building this empire of his on the back of poor slaves. He worked them to the bone. He made them grind and literally slave away their entire lives. This nation was the nation of Israel, God's people. And they were well into something of a 400-year lockdown, if you will. So there was a man... Named Moses. And this man was actually born as one of these slaves, but he was raised in the evil king's palace. And then there was God, the one true God. And this God revealed himself to Moses as the great I am who had come to this land of Egypt to deliver his people out of slavery. And now I want to tell you about two fictional Israelite dads who, for our purposes, may represent your your typical slave Jew living in Egypt. And and this illustration is a bit of an adapted one from one given by Don Carson, so there's a disclaimer there. But each one of these guys had a family, and each was hardworking. Each was a slave in Egypt, and they had Israelite-sounding names, Jim and John. And so let's get to know Jim and John. And first, John was confident. John was a nose to the grindstone, blue collar, tough guy, and he didn't really worry about things very much. Now, Jim, on the other hand, was less confident. He was more of a thinker, or really an overthinker. He was a very anxious fella. Now, John and Jim. They were good mates, and they lived during the time of the Exodus. And they were sitting on the back porch one day, having a conversation after a long, hard day of making bricks with no straw. And John, uh, uh, sorry, Jim said to John, "John, are you worried?" And John said, "About what?" And Jim says, you know, "About everything that's been going on. All these plagues." There's been gnats. There's been plagues of frogs and hail and darkness in Egypt. And there's been nine of them by now. Things are pretty crazy at the moment. And John just kind of chuckled and he's like, yeah, things have been pretty crazy, I guess. But don't you see how God has been taking care of us? I mean, you know, I didn't get any boils and my livestock are all fine. And while the land of Goshen was lit up beautifully when the land of Egypt was in darkness, I think it's fine. I don't think we need to worry. And Jim replied, Yeah, I guess. His voice betraying some feelings of fear, even despite John's reassurance. And Jim was getting nervous about all that was happening around him. It, judgment was literally falling from heaven. And he wondered whether... He would survive all that was going on. He wondered, he felt the sense of in, this, in his heart, if God was going to calm and judge Egypt, well, they had done a lot of things wrong, but perhaps he himself might not measure up to God's standard. This morning's sermon is titled Marked for Mercy. And as we go through this text in Exodus, we're going to unpack three points about what the Lord does in this passage and what this teaches us about our own standing before God. So we're going to see in this passage how the Lord marks rebels for judgment, how he marks his people for mercy, and how their lives ought to be marked by holiness. So the three points, I'm going to call those out as we go along. So if you like taking notes, don't worry, I'll try and give you enough time to write down the headings. So first point, the Lord marks rebels for judgment. The Lord marks rebels for judgment. So a man named Lord Acton once put it this way. He said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this was absolutely true of Pharaoh. This tyrant king had been ruling over the slaves in uh, the slaves of the nation of Israel living in Egypt for some time now. So you think that going from Melbourne being the most livable city in the world to the most locked down city in the world is a hard thing. These guys have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Like think about how long 400 years is. So that's, that's a very long time. That's all your ancestors you could think of for so, like so far back uh, grandma, great grandpa, and all—they've been slaves for such a long time. That is the context. God's people; they were supposed to be this nation with all these promises, but they instead were in Egypt. They were—they had broken backs and broken spirits. They were living under slavery. But if you know the story of the Exodus, it is the story of their exit from Egypt. God never just left them in that situation. He raised up a deliverer and the deliverer's name was Moses. And so Moses came to Pharaoh and he, he would come to them and he would have these meetings and he would say, God tells you that you need to let his people go. He, he would come and say, let my people go, that they might come and worship me. And Pharaoh would keep saying, no, 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 no. And so there were plagues, 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 plagues. So God would send plagues on uh, the Egyptians because Pharaoh would not let go of his slaves because you know, building an empire uh, on slaves is a lot cheaper than paying the award construction rate. So that's what happened. So Pharaoh, he, throughout the story of Exodus, you get, you get this phrase in this sense that Pharaoh you know, keeps saying, well, who is God? I don't know God. But the story of Exodus is God making himself known. And he makes himself known to Pharaoh in judgment. And so at this point, uh, as we kind of get to the end of the plagues, God has been, as it were, undoing creation itself. When you think about what all these plagues were, the supernatural working of God to undo creation in a sense. And so Pharaoh, after each plague, after watching his nation get battered, he still... He still wants to hang on to the Israelites. And so as we're reading, it seems like things are kind of still somewhat going badly in this negotiation. But of course, God had a plan. Now, Egypt, the nation of Egypt, was somewhat similar to the culture that we live in. They're a wealthy nation. So you heard last week that they were on a plain by the Nile and it was fertile. It was a good place to farm. So they had a lot of food. They're also very pluralistic, so they had lots of different gods. You could choose from lots of options. And, and human nature, even though we've moved on thousands of years now, human nature has not really progressed since then. It wasn't as though people back then, you know, they would worship idols and have statues and these funny things. We think that seems kind of weird, but it, it seems kind of dumb and primitive. But... It was actually—it actually kind of makes sense. So, so their religion was very much tied to their way of life. It was uh, the the worship of these false gods was essentially a means to an end. It was, you know, they would get something from it. That was kind of the deal with this false uh, worship, so they thought. So, just like today, in a similar way, idols are a means to an end. They get us something that we want. Well, so we think. I'll give you a list of some of these Egyptian false gods. So so one example was they had the god Seth. And Seth Seth was the god that you would pray to if you wanted crops. They had another god, Mashkinet, And if you wanted kids, then Mashkinet could take care of any infertility issues. You had the god Num, the god of the Nile River. And as you know, the Nile River was like the lifeline of Egypt. It's what made Egypt such an awesome place to be. Ra, they had the sun god, Ra. And it was thought by the Egyptians that Ra reigned supreme and sovereign over all. Worship of these gods was not just an arbitrary festival of weird hoo-ha. It all was very much integrated and tied into their way of life. So you notice as I went through that list... If you are a society, an agrarian society made up of farmers, these, these gods are said to be able to promise a lot. And it's similar for us today too. We have all these false gods of convenience and comfort and gods that can, false gods that can give us pleasure, we think, security, health and safety. We put our trust in these gods to deliver prestige and power. Fame, prominence. And I wonder if any of these false gods altars you have visited and worshipped at this week. Now, throughout the book of Exodus, these plagues that come and smash these puny, fake Egyptian gods, they unravel creation's... Itself. They unravel Egyptian society and they unravel their whole religious system. One way to think about Exodus is, is God's war, like the one true God's war on false gods, on idolatry. This whole religious system is shown to be what it is. It's a complete sham. When the one true God shows up, he gives Egypt and all the false gods this reality check. So, what do I mean? Well, the Nile River. Think about the plagues. The Nile River becomes blood. It gets turned to blood. And when your river, your great river is blood, it's undrinkable. It's useless. You see plagues of frogs and gnats and flies and locusts. They come and they just wipe out Egyptian crops and livestock. The Egyptians themselves get afflicted with boils all over their body. Hail and fire rain from the sky. And the land interestingly, is plunged into, at one point, deep darkness. So you remember the sun god, Ra? Well, God just turns off the sun, in a sense. It is as though the land of Egypt is plunged into deep darkness and the smiling face of Ra is no longer upon them. The gods of Egypt are nothing. And it forces the king and the nation to come to their knees to acknowledge the reality that there is one true God, Yahweh. Now, there are two ways you can know the speed limit. You can see it on a sign and obey the speed limit, and life is good. On the other hand, you cannot know the speed limit. You can drive past the speed camera and get a fine in the mail and learn the speed limit the hard way. There are two two ways to to know the speed limit, and there are two ways to know God. Pharaoh found out the hard way, and all of this brought him to breaking point. So as we pick up in chapter 11, verse 4, God tells, uh, tells them that one last plague will come on the Egyptians, and this one. This one will be like no other. This one is going to be terrible. Verse 4 About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. Verse 5 And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Every single firstborn would die. Every single one. From the king's palace to the slaves' quarters, everyone would die. Firstborn. It's horrific. Verse 6. There shall be a great cry in Egypt, throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Just think about that. Can you... I wonder if you can put yourself in that situation. Have you got a son? Have you got a father? Do you know any men? How about some of the people in this church? What would it be like to lose them? Perhaps you know what that's like. To lose someone that close to you. Perhaps... Something that you're yet to experience. But for these Egyptian people, it would mean that they would have woken up in the night to find dead people in every house. So a family would wake up. They would find dead people in the family. They would weep and wail and cry out. And then the next door, neighbors would hear, perhaps, and they would wake up and find the same. They would weep and wail and cry out. Death if this plague was to come true, would be everywhere in the land of Egypt. So you can't just like breeze past this part of the story. Like it confronts us with a reality that we don't really like to think about. God creates life and he is able to take it away. Now we live in a culture that kind of likes to shield us from death, we don't, we don't like to call things. Uh, we don't like to call them funerals. We'd prefer the terminology of like celebration of life. So people die often in a hospital, especially at the moment, in a sanitized environment, sometimes away from family and friends rather than at home. And we so desperately want to hold death back when it comes in the form of a pandemic. And death is something we want to push to the edges. But its reality is inevitable. And death reminds us that ultimately God's judgment is coming. Death reminds us that the world is not right. The world is cursed. And death is a result. Death is awful. We have a weird relationship to death. On one hand, we want to push it far away. It doesn't belong in polite conversation. You can't ask about it. You shouldn't really bring it up. But when it does happen, we say the weirdest stuff in our culture. We say things like, Grandpa is going off to play golf in the sky. Rather than the reality. No, no, Grandpa is now dead. That's a reality. That's the painful reality. We want to push death away. But inevitably, it comes. And when it does, we don't know what to do to cope, so we just try to avoid the subject. It's an awkward topic. And if you don't want to be reminded of death, then don't go to Egypt. Like of all places. You know what you go to see in Egypt? Pyramids. You know what pyramids are? They are tombs. They are these giant, huge, ridiculous monuments to the dead. Like think about how big that is for one person. That's crazy. These great pyramids that Egypt is famous for. These are the it's ironic. They are the, the great tombs to the dead. And and Egypt as a nation, as a culture, they were obsessed with death. They were very different to us in that way. So uh, they, they obviously had the pyramids. They, you know, Egypt's famous for mummifying their kings. They would mummify the dead. They were obsessed. They would fill the, tr- the tombs with, with treasures and gold and they would spend more money on death than any other ancient culture around. And we do somewhat similar things, not quite to the same extent, but we dress corpses in fine Italian wool suits and put cushioned premium leather shoes on the dead feet. We place the dead into luxury Hardwood caskets with velvet memory foam padding, almost as though we're trying to make life comfortable for the dead. We're a lot different to the Egyptians in a lot of ways in our attitude to death, but in a lot of ways we're very similar. And in the most important way, we are exactly the same. That is, we will die. We will all die. And we do these strange things because this reality does not make sense to us. It's not the way it should be. But death will come for you. I wonder if you ever think about that. If you ever think about your own death. Death will come for me. As surely as death came for the Egyptians back then. But the threat of this final plague wasn't just general, you know, people dying in old age at different times. This was going to be a supernatural sweep of judgment where all these people would die at once. It was going to be an absolute tragedy in the land of Egypt. So the Egyptians even had gods of the dead and the dying. So if you look at verse 7, it's interesting because one of the Egyptian gods was represented by a dog, and this God would usher people into the underworld. He is the God of the dead and the dying, and he was represented by a dog. And verse 7 says, interestingly, that not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So God would make a distinction between those who are his, that is, Israel, and those who are not, Egypt. He would make a distinction. He would choose one from the other. Egyptian sons would die and the sons of Israel would be spared. And they would go free. And they would serve Yahweh and worship Yahweh. So you have this big threat of death looming over the land of Egypt, but at the same time, this promise of God making a distinction of God saving his people. And so chapter 11 finishes off verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So once again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to listen to God and he seals his own fate. It is as though there's like this control panel with a big shiny red button that says self-destruct, do not press. And God has taken the cover off that button and Pharaoh presses the button. We're at the cliffhanger of Exodus right now. The threat of judgment has been given to Egypt and God has promised that he will make a distinction and save his people. So that is the first point. Rebels are marked for judgment. The second point of the sermon is that the Lord marks his people for mercy. So point two, the Lord marks his people for mercy. Now, I don't know if you ever, like, used to tape movies on TV back in the day. If you're like much younger than me, you probably have no idea what this is about, but you could, pre- you could tape things on, on TV with a VHS recorder, and so people would tape movies. And, and what would happen is you'd be watching back one of these movies a bit later, like, I don't know, Star Wars Episode five, and and Darth Vader would just about to be telling Luke that, you know, I am your father... And then what would happen would you you'd get an ad break, interrupt the flow of the story, and it was quite annoying, right? And, and, and this Harvey Norman ad would come on or something, cra- something silly like that. And the, the narrative would be interrupted. And as we come to the cliffhanger of Exodus, the story is interrupted in some sense. If you're reading carefully, it's not by a Harvey Norman ad, of course, it is by something else, the Passover. So as you're reading through, it just feels a little bit like the Passover kind of comes and it's almost a bit out of place. It's a bit strange that you don't just, like with all the other plagues, see a simple continuation of what God says and God actually doing what he says. That's what we see with the other plagues, but it's not what happened here. So if that was to happen, you could just almost skip over to uh, Exodus twelve twenty nine, and just keep reading the story and it would kind of make sense but instead what happens is you get the Passover you get these details of a peculiar feast that the Israelites would have why well so far God has been making a clear distinction all along He's been making a distinction between Israel, his own people, and Egypt, Pharaoh's people. He's been capable of doing that throughout all the plagues. You know, he sends darkness to Pharaoh and sends light to Israel. Uh, Egyptian cows die and Israel's cows do not die. Egypt is hit with hail and fire and the land of Goshen where the Israelites live, they are fine. Because God is fully capable of sending plagues on Egypt and not hitting Israel, if you will. He's been making this distinction all along. So why now does Israel, Israel have to do this Passover? From Israel's point of view, Pharaoh had always been their biggest problem. You know, they'd wake up, oh, Pharaoh's king, he's been... Pharaoh's been kings for 400 years. We've been slaves. You know, that was their reality. They had this tyrant who ruled over them. That was what they experienced every day, and that was their biggest concern. But now, Pharaoh's not their biggest problem. God himself is Israel's biggest problem. Because this time, in this plague, he himself will draw near And when the Lord himself, Yahweh, the great I am, draws near, things are not now just going to be safe and dandy for Israel living in the land of Goshen. Because how can a holy God be amongst any unholy people? I mean, we know that Egypt was sinful, we get that. But Israel was too. From their birth, the Israelites had lived in bondage. Not only to Pharaoh, but also in bondage to sin. And the Bible says that that is common to all of humanity. Genesis 6.5 says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How's that for a description? Only evil continually. Now God... Is a judge. And as the judge of all the earth, as the creator of all the earth, he is right in punishing sinners, people who have rebelled against his holy will. And so when he comes into the land of Egypt, when he comes to claim the firstborn, he needs to come for all of them to be consistent. If a holy God, Yahweh, was to come into the midst of Egypt, how could he spare his own firstborn son, Israel. I wonder what you think your biggest problem is. Well, your biggest problem is not actually money. It's not health or happiness. It's not lockdown, big tech, the Great Reset or China. It's not climate change or COVID. Your biggest problem is God. And if you are outside of Christ, if you are not united to Christ then God's judgment rests on you for your rebellion against God. How could Israel be spared from death? How can you be spared from death? Picking up in chapter 12, verse 12 and 13, it says, For I will pass it, God, God will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt all, both man and beasts. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. God would strike the land in judgment. And if Israel was to stay safe, well, they needed to obey God. They needed the Passover, the blood of a sacrificial lamb. For the Passover, each family was to take a spotless lamb, perfect, keep it with them a few days in preparation. And as Passover day would come, they would slit this lamb's throat at sundown. The pure white wool of the lamb would become stained with blood. That's a graphic experience. And they would take this blood of this precious lamb and, and, and take it and paint it on the doorposts in the lintel of their house. And then they were to go inside, shut the door, and stay inside and eat this lamb's roasted flesh, doing everything in a very particular way, in the way that God had told them. So why? Why the, the bloody sacrifice of this lamb? Well, it was symbolic, and it was symbolic of substitution. Chapter twelve, thirteen: the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So if Israel was to be spared from the wrath of God, they needed to mark themselves out with a sign, the sign of the blood of this lamb. And when they did this, they were made distinct. They were marked not for judgment now, but they were marked for mercy. And the Passover was something of a new beginning for Israel. It was an event that was... Absolutely central to their identity as a redeemed people. There was nothing casual about the Passover. There was nothing laid back. Everything had to be done exactly the way that God said. In a very specific and particular way. Everything was detailed and symbolic and full of meaning and importance. So as we skim the text in chapter 12, we'll just have a look at five uh, key things that I want to point out. Uh, Verse 4 tells us that the portions were precise. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each lamb, uh, sorry, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. So the portions were precise. So they need to take exactly the right amount for their family. You know, you've got teenage boys, big family, maybe you need the whole lamb. Small family, go share with the neighbours. That was the idea. So there was a precision and an exactness about the proportion of lamb divided up among the people. And that is to say that the sacrifice that God provides is always definite and specific The atonement that God provides is definite, definite atonement. Verse 5 tells us that the lamb selection was precise. So you don't just pick a bad lamb, you know, bad teeth, bad wool, bad breath, whatever. No, that's not the lamb you choose. You choose the best lamb, a year old, from the sheep or from the goats. This lamb had to be... Spotless. Because the unrighteous can die in punishment for its own sin, but only a perfect substitute can die in the place of another. And all throughout the whole event, timing was precise. It had to be done at a specific day. Notice that. It had to be done right on twilight because the destroyer was coming at midnight. They had to operate according to a schedule. They were not to be dawdling or dilly-dallying. They had to be on the ball, concentrating. We also noticed that the cooking instructions were precise. You don't just jump on taste.com to pick out a recipe. It was done in ex- a very exact way, the way that God wanted. They weren't to boil the lamb or eat it raw. They were to roast it in this way, not that way. With these herbs and not, not those herbs. If within this specific time frame, exactly the way that God required. Even their clothing was specified. There's a dress code in verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. So they were to be dressed and ready for action. Notice the type of clothing. It's travel clothing. They would have their shoes on, walking stick, ready to move. They weren't to be eating in their pajamas. Once dinner was ready, they were to eat it quick, slam the meal down. They were about to go on a journey. And all of this symbolism, it's very rich, isn't it? We could talk about it for days. And essentially, it boils down to this. The people were to obey God. In faith. When you think about it, all these actions, they all require some measure of faith, don't they? Think about all these acts involved here, taking the best lamb. You don't really do that unless you think that's important. You don't just kill your best lamb for no reason. Eating the whole thing and burning all the leftovers. That only makes sense if you're, up, you're about to be up and on the move. No keeping it for tomorrow, we're going to be gone tomorrow. Same with the clothing. You only get dressed for a journey if you really believe you're about to go on a journey. And here's the point obedience to God goes hand in hand with us having our faith in God. Does that make sense? You cannot separate obedience and faith. True obedience, like James 2 teaches this, faith without works is dead. True obedience demonstrates that we believe God's promises, that we believe that he will do what he says he will do. That is, it demonstrates our faith. And so the Passover lamb was this sign to mark out the people of God so that they would not be destroyed. But think about it. What's so significant about a lamb to escape the ultimate judgment of God? Nothing about the lamb itself but only in what the lamb pointed to. Verse 13 says that the lamb shall be a sign for you. A sign. Think about what signs do. When I drive out to the country to visit my hometown, where my parents live, they're here this morning. And uh, when I go visit, there's a sign that points to Druin. That's where I grew up. And that sign indicates my next action. communicates to me, okay, don't forget to turn off here. But the sign itself is not drawn. The sign points to a reality. The sign is meaningful, but it points to the reality. So what is the reality? In the New Testament, as we come to the New Testament, we see that when John the Baptist sees Christ, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the full meaning. The Passover lamb meant salvation for Israel, but the fuller meaning of the Passover lamb was that it was a sign that pointed to Christ. That is what the New Testament teaches us. And Christ would come, and he would live a perfect life. He was spotless, righteous, and holy. He was a lamb without blood, Spot or blemish. He was precisely the sacrifice that we need. No drop of blood that he would spill would be spilled in vain. So the judgment of God was held over you like a dam full of fire. And breaking forth, this deluge of judgment fell not on you, If you are in Christ, but it fell on Christ when He died for you on the cross. He was plunged beneath that flood of God's wrath and fury for all of those who would place their faith in Him. But He didn't die on the cross and just stay dead. He rose again three days later. He conquered death itself. He conquered the ultimate plague of death. As Cowper as wrote, "...all those sinners who would plunge themselves beneath the fountain of His blood they would lose all their guilty stains. And that is the reality of the gospel. It is this, that I've sinned against the holy God. You've sinned against the holy God. Israel had sinned against the holy God. And the only hope for any of us is that for us to escape God's judgment, we too need to fly to the fountain of God, of Christ's blood, of the capital Al Lamb's blood. And we need to have that painted, figuratively above us, that the judgment of God would pass over each one of us. The judgment of God passing over a people who absolutely deserve to have their blood shed because of the sacrificial lamb's blood being shed in their stead. That is what the Passover is about. You see what it's pointing us to? It's pointing us to the heart of the gospel, substitutionary atonement, Christ dying in the place of sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The Passover is about being marked for mercy. That's the second point. This is the third point. So the Lord's people are to be marked by holiness. So let's talk about that. So, the Lord's people, let's be marked by holiness. All right, I want to talk to you for a moment about sourdough and lockdown. When lockdown happened in 2020, the whole world, it seems, became like obsessed with baking. And people got into sourdough. And sourdough is really cool. Like, you have a, a starter and it lives in the fridge and you feed it, it becomes like a family pet. And you put it in your dough, and that becomes a rising agent that causes the bread to puff up, and you get this delicious, delicious, uh, golden lump of sour carbohydrates, and it's worthy of putting on Instagram, Facebook, and you know, everyone. Well, a lot of people got into sourdough. I love sourdough. One of the cool things about sourdough is you can keep using that starter over and over. Uh, there's a pizza restaurant in Melbourne that has been using the same starter uh, that the guy brought over from Napoli back in Italy decades ago. That's pretty cool. The idea is that the starter can be mixed through as many loaves as, as you need. This bacteria just needs to be fed and, and it will grow and permeate and, and go right throughout a loaf of bread. Why am I talking about sourdough? Because being knowledgeable in sourdough primes you well for being able to understand the next portion of Scripture, Exodus twelve fourteen to 20. Because we have another feast. We've had the Passover, now we have another feast that comes up, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is found from verses 15 to 20, and it is a continuation out of the Passover. And we find this idea of obedience and faith is developed further. So on the day that they would kill this lamb, they would begin to eat unleavened bread. Sourdough, kind of. Oh, Sorry, sourdough without the sour bit. So they would kill this lamb and they would have bread without yeast. So there's no starter in it. It would stay flat, right? And they would have this feast and then seven days, no leaven was to be found among the Israelites. So leaven is the sour bit of sourdough, if you will, it is this rising agent, and it is yeast that gets mixed into bread and causes the dough to rise. And as sourdough makers know well, the rising process takes a bit of time. But Israel, they didn't have time. They were about to go. They were about to be moving up and out of Egypt. So lockdown was about to end. It's not Sourdough time, it was move time. Let's go. So, Israel wasn't to be waiting around for the bread to rise. They were to cook, eat, and go. Again, why? It's an act of faith. That's why. If you think nothing's going to happen, why would you bother obeying this rule? Like, think about it. Like, puffy bread's kind of nice. A little leaven surely can't hurt. But, on the other hand, if they truly did that, believe that God was about to act, Then they needed to be ready and unleavened bread totally makes sense. And so, again, in faith, the people of Israel were to eat unleavened bread. Are you a person of faith? Are you a person of faith? If you're a Christian, then you would probably say, yeah, I'm a person of faith. And I wonder if you've ever talked to someone about your faith, shared your faith. And they've said, oh, well. I wish I had your faith. Or maybe they don't wish they had your faith, but they might say something like, oh, it's great that you have that faith. What is faith, though? Is faith just like some naive thing? Is it a leap in the dark? Is faith illogical? Is faith mystical? Biblical faith here, as it is expressed Is none of those things. No, no, faith is a response to the promises of God. And this response is based upon who God is and what he has done in history. So let me ask you again, are you a person of faith? Well, I don't care who you are, but the answer is, of course, yes. So if you're a Christian, you have put your faith in the reality of who God is, what he has said, what he has done. Even if you're here today, you're not a Christian. Even if you're an atheist, you also put faith in the fact that God doesn't exist. Pharaoh was a man of faith. He had a lot of faith in himself. He was very self-confident. And Moses, Aaron, the Israelites, they had faith. Their faith was in the promise of God that he would come and when he would come in judgment, he would see the blood and he would pass over all of them. So the question is not whether you have faith. The question is, what is your faith in? The question is, where does your faith lie? And if you want to know the answer to that question, you need to examine the way that you live. Do you live the way that God has told you to live? According to his commandments? Or not? So the leavened bread has, I guess, layers of meaning in some way. It symbolizes, first of all, the speed at which the Israelites would be thrust out and ejected from Egypt. But it also points to something else in Jewish thinking. Paul picks up on this and develops this in 1 Corinthians 5, as we had read this morning. And Paul, as he is writing to the Corinthians, he teaches them that, an illustration, he tells them a, a, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And in the New Testament, Paul picks up on this Passover theme and he, he teaches them about this Passover, applies it to their situation and comments on it in this way. He goes in on the fact that there is unrepented sin in the church of Corinth. He's not happy. And this sin, according to Paul, is one that should be dealt with. It is so serious. It should be dealt with by excommunicating the offender. So this particular sin is public, it is scandalous, and it is having a detrimental effect on the church body. It's important to keep that in mind. And so Paul says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, your boasting is not good. So these, these Corinthians, they're not just sinning, but they're boasting about sin. They're arrogant about how tolerant they are of sin. And Paul says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The way to get leaven back then is you know, similar to sourdough. You take a bit of the bread with the yeast and you put that into the next bit of bread. You know, it's not like you know, today we have the packets, you just tip it in and make your bread. It was different. that You would keep leaven from the day before, leavened dough, and you would put that into the bread. And the way it works is that yeast is alive. It's a bacteria. And it grows and it spreads and it permeates. The whole dough It goes right through. And a little bit of leaven is all it takes. So too, sin, when it is retained within the people of God, it does the same thing, it has the same effect, it grows and it spreads. And it takes upon a life of its own. I wonder if you've seen that before in a church. And think back to the Exodus in the context of the Passover story. Levin symbolically communicated to the Israelites that they were not to, I guess, retain the sins of Egypt, No, they weren't to do that. There was no attitude of, oh, well, you know, you can take the Israelite out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of the Israelite. It wasn't like that. No, Egypt's leaven, Egypt's idolatry and rebellion against God, that was to be cut off. It was to be left behind. It was to be discontinued, out of stock. And within the church of God, it is the same. The people of God are not to be keeping little clumps of leaven in unrepentance and unholiness, hanging on to sin. We're to cut it off. Paul says in verse 7 cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see that connection there? Christ is our passover lamb so we are to live in holiness cleanse out the sin from within upon the ground <laughs> upon the grounds that Christ who is our sacrificial lamb has died to cleanse us from sin Paul continues in verse eight. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the old life that we once lived before we were Christians is to be cut off at this point, totally removed from the house of God. We should we should treat sin just like the Israelites were to treat leaven. We find it, chuck it out. Don't put it in the next bit of bread. However, today we live in a culture, and, and sadly this is a culture that is within many churches, that people become somewhat relaxed and accommodating of sin. So we love the idea of, you know, saved by grace. This church is called grace. But do we also love the idea of what God says when, he's, when, he, when he says that we are to be holy as He, he is holy, do we love that, or do we think that we can keep just a little bit of leaven from yesterday and be all cool with God? Now, if you're relaxed when it comes to obeying God, and you know you say things like this in your heart, you know, like I can look at this image; it's not really a problem. God knows my heart. Oh, I can I can date this person. You know, God knows my heart; it won't matter. God will forgive me. Or I can tell a white lie. Lie to my boss. God knows it won't matter. I probably don't need to pay tax on this. Like, God doesn't care. I can gossip. What's the big deal? Now turn back with me to Exodus 12, verse 19. Exodus 12, verse 19 says, If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. Cut off. So what happens to these leaven keepers? They are cut off from the people of God. They, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? Like, that's not popular. But because God is holy and sin is serious... Jesus himself calls us to take the sin in our lives seriously. And that means in our lives individually and in our life as a church. Corporately, we are to take sin seriously. We, pra- we practice biblical self-discipline, self-control. It is a fruit of the Spirit to kill sin within us. We're called to that. We're called as well for churches. To, as churches, we are called to practice biblical church discipline and the point is to keep sin from growing and permeating and damaging destroying the entire church body grace community bible church is called to practice church discipline that's not popular these days is it no of course it's not but it is biblical it is essential Now, don't hear me saying the church is this perfect place. We've heard that a few times mentioned this morning. The church is not a perfect place. You don't come because you're perfect. But it is a place full of repentant sinners. And that is different. People who are seeking by the, the, the grace of God and the power of the Spirit to put to death sin in their lives. That is who the church is. Sin is serious, people. Brothers and sisters, we are called to obey. So let's come back to the back porch where our friends, Jim and John, are drinking a coffee. I don't know where they got that from. Clearly, this is a fictional story. But anyway, they're, they're, they're together and they're chatting. And, and Jim, remember Jim, you know, he asked John, John, do you ever think about death much? Do you ever think about death much? And John says, oh, you know, not much, to be honest. But that's changed a bit lately. It's confronted me quite a lot lately. Jim and John, by now, they've heard about this threat of this final plague, the plague of death. And they've heard about what they need to do with the lamb. And they've heard about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so John continues, death is a bad thing for sure, but I'm not too worried about it. Look, I'm sure that you're thinking about the final plague, but The Lord will protect us. He treats us differently than he does Egypt. And Jim was less sure and he said, But why, John? What makes us so different to Egypt? How can you be sure that the fact that we won't die when the Lord shows up and kills all these people? Jim's tone grew more urgent. He, and he goes, how can you, he, he says to John, he says, how can you guarantee that we'll be okay? I mean, what if it doesn't work? And John responded with compassion for Jim. And he said, Jim, just look to the blood and remember the promises of God. And Jim sat And he pondered till next week. Now, friends, if you have put your faith in Christ, then you need to do the same. And you need to look to the blood, the blood that was spilt by Christ, that stains his cross, the cleansing flow that has afforded your forgiveness. His blood was shed for you that the wrath of God might pass over you as well. So if you are in Christ this morning, then you have been marked for mercy. Let's pray. Our Saviour God, our covenant-keeping God who remembers His promises We thank you that you have acted in history and that you have shown us your character. You have revealed to us, your people, who you are. You've shown us your redemption in the story of the Exodus and in the way that this Passover lamb ultimately points to the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray that you would help us to look with eyes of faith and to have assurance by looking to Christ. Help us, Lord, as we continue on, not to doubt, not to waver, but to look to the blood and know that we have been marked for mercy by the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf. In his name we pray. Amen.